before we begin, let me just make a note here of one minor change in the text that I put out is that we're adjusting the Luke passage to begin at verse 14. So we'll begin at verse 14 when we read our passage. Today we'll continue our study concerning the five parts of the Lord's Day service, the call, the confession, the consecration, and we'll stick with those C's, although better understood as ascension, communion, which is today, and next week, the commissioning. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, we come before you with thanksgiving that you have called us into your presence. We rejoice in your grace and mercy for the forgiveness of our sins for Jesus' sake. We ask now that your holy word, sharp as a two-edged sword, cut us up, rearrange us, and conform us to your Son, Jesus. We appeal to you, our Heavenly Father, to remember your promises to us through your Son, Son Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension. Hear our request that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, for the sake of your Son, Jesus. Amen. So we have two passages that we'll be looking at today and considering in relationship to communion or the Lord's table. Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 14, and then Numbers chapter 10, verse 10. Let us hear God's word. When the hour had come, he sat down, that is Jesus, and the twelve apostles with him. Then he said to them, with fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until in the kingdom of God. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, he took the cup after the supper, saying, The cup. This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. And let us hear Numbers chapter 10, verse 10. Also in the day of your gladness, in your appointed feasts, and at the beginning of your months, you shall blow the trumpets over your burnt, that is, ascension offerings, and over the sacrifices of your peace offerings. And they shall be a memorial for you before your God. I am Yahweh, your God. This is the word of the Lord. So I want to share with you a couple of things. Um, in the time that I've been here, I've been encouraged by many to get out and get exercise, and I joined a gym. And as you also know that uh, sometimes it's warm in here, and among you all, I might be the one who perspires the most. Um, we even had a Sunday where it came down so hard it was like a wave, and I couldn't read my notes for about 10 seconds. Um so I'm often concerned about making sure I maintain my potassium levels as I perspire. And so as you look at that, you take, okay, how do I get this up? What do I do? Many of you guys see me in Sunday school. I'm, I'm drinking a, uh, a particular sport drink to keep those, those up. Uh, but I consider my diet as well. And so, you know, I, I eat bananas. And, of course, there's only so many bananas one can eat. But I was amazed when I went back and started taking a look at it about something that I had taken out of my diet 
and had shunned because of all the bad press. And that's potatoes. When I look at it, potatoes, an average russet potato, has almost three times the amount of potassium that a banana does. As a matter of fact, if you look at it carefully by daily percentages, one russet potato has all kinds of great nutrients that we need. Your daily allowances of iron, 40%. Vitamin C, if you're concerned about getting sick, 42%. Potassium, 35%. And vitamin B6, 82%. Uh, and, you know, it's funny because as I, as I was considering this, this is going to be relevant to the sermon here in a second. I promise you. But, you know, when you look up things that you should try to drop out of your diet, potatoes are right up there. And often what they do is when they're talking about Americans and potatoes, they keep emphasizing French fries. Sure, if you take anything and you drop it in some fat, it might taste good, but it does change um, the nutritional values of it. And in so many ways, we can take things that are really good for us and we can try to minimize them and we can try to change them or we can cut them out of our life completely. And that, in fact, is what much of the church has done through history as it relates to the, church, the Lord's table. You try to change it, try to make it something it's not. In some places, they try to ignore it, do it every once in a while. You know, when we consider the Lord's table, John Calvin says this about the Lord's table. The devil, knowing that our Lord left nothing more beneficial to the church than his holy sacrament, according to his accustomed manner, this is the devil's accustomed manner, exerted himself from the beginning to contaminate it with errors and superstitions and to corrupt and to destroy its fruit and has not ceased to pursue this course until he has almost wholly subverted it into a falsehood and vanity, that is, emptiness. Now you think about that for a minute. Of all the things that the church acknowledges that one ought to do, they all know that the Lord's table should be somewhere, and yet they've done all kinds of things to it, including minimizing it as much as possible. Well, we're going to make it plain and regular. Now, if you understand how we've been talking about God's calling his people before him as his covenant people, recognizing that this is a memorial to God's covenant with us, and we'll talk about that more in just a minute, why would in the world would we not want to renew that, that covenant before God every single week? There's another commentator that says this. There is only one ritual commanded in the New Testament for routine use in the church. That is, every week. The ritual of the Lord's Supper. I believe that Satan does not want the church to do the rite of the Lord's Supper and has expended tremendous energy to prevent our doing in the way that Jesus said to do it. Now we know that God, from the very beginning, has had a plan of reconciliation for mankind. God had food and fellowship with man in mind since creation. 
And we've talked about that in just the past weeks. We saw that the very first command that God gives in terms of living, because he talked about taking dominion, being fruitful, multiply, but he gave instructions about food. And he was with Adam when he said this. So there was communion together with the face of God, and God is talking about food. We need to recognize that the table of the Lord is a table of redemption, the new gathering of the Passover community. And we see that in the eschaton, or in the eternity of all of God's people, there is the fulfillment of God's table of peace with us. We see this in Revelation 19.9. Then he said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true sayings of God. So that great and mighty day of the marriage supper of the Lamb is the fulfillment of all the, the excuse me, all of the um, types and shadows that have God has provided for us in rituals and all the symbols that He gives us through His Word. God made promises to reconcile man in Eden, and God kept those promises in Christ Jesus. God always keeps his promises. We see in Exodus chapter 3 that Yahweh, and that's God's covenant name, and God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Moreover, God said to Moses, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, Yahweh God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial to all generations. So God's memorial name is Yahweh. And he gives that to Israel, and he says, this is about my covenant to you, and this is my memorial name, and this is important, and we'll get into that here in just a moment. And God keeps his promises. We see this in Joshua 23, Lamentations 2, Galatians 6. And of course, many, many, many passages. 1 Thessalonians 5.23 says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, who calls you, he who calls you, is faithful, who also will do it. We also see in Hebrews 8, beginning in verse 10, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. We need to understand and grab hold with both hands that God, the personal God who gave us his name and says, my name is Yahweh, and it is this is the name with which I want you to remember that I make a covenant with you. Grab a hold of that. Make memorial with that. And we're going to talk about what memorial means here shortly. We know that God keeps his promises to his covenant people. We see in 1 Corinthians 11, beginning in verse 23, we recognize this as a, as a passage that is read over and over again at the Lord's table. And this is Paul speaking. He says this, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, 
that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Now, it's interesting. It says again there in the next verse, it says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This word remember that we see is in the Hebrew, when we talk about remember, and we're going to tie this in here in just a second, is zalkar. And this is to make a remembrance memorial. We see this in Genesis chapter 9. After the flood, God makes promises about not flooding the earth again, not bringing judgment in that fashion. And what does he do? He says that I will remember. This remembering ritual is for God to remember his promises. Now, God doesn't forget, but he asks us to do this so that we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We proclaim the Lord's death at his table of peace to the Father, asking the Father to remember his covenant promises to us for the sake of his Son, Jesus Christ. The cup shows forth his death covenant memorial. It is primarily a way for us to plead the promises of the Father so that the Father will say, I see and remember. Bread and wine. The Lord's table is an extremely simple ritual of thanksgiving in a meal. As modern Protestants, when we hear the, hear the word like ritual, we cover our eyes, we cover our ears, we tear our robes, and we want to flee. Why? Because we're so afraid of the idea of work salvation that we want to flee from all rituals. We have bought into the lie of Plato's rationalism, the corrupt idea of a dualistic view of the world. A spiritual world, that's good and desirable. A physical world, bad. The world and the things in it are bad because if we do rituals and we do the things in the physical world, oh, that's just terrible. And a lot of times, you know what we do? We just take a verse here or there and we, we take it out of context to, to make this dualism a reality. Jesus' conversation with the woman of the well is one of these. And he says in John 4, 24, he says, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Now Jesus here is not offering a generalized doctrine of putting down outward worship so a more authentic and less earthy worship is put away. Jesus' answer here is directed at the question that the woman at the well asked about where is the geographical location where we worship. Remember in that passage, what is he saying? Or she says, hey, you Jews, you worship in Jerusalem, and we worship over here on our mountain. Which one's right? Jesus simply responds 
that it is Jerusalem right now. It is where the temple of God is. And of course, we've talked about this before. We are the living stones. We are the temple of God. And so we don't need to go back to Jerusalem to a temple. Of course, there's no building there now. Jesus is the cornerstone. We're the living stones. So when we come come together and gather as God's covenant people, we are the temple of God. We've ascended up into his presence. It is the place here today together where the Spirit of God is. As one commentator said, spiritual worship is both internal and external, carried out with sincerity and integrity. Or, as a popular phrase today amongst many Christians, all of Christ for all of life. Christ told us to remember, that is, memorialize his death with bread and wine. We need not to turn the table or the bread and wine into idols. Listen, right now, there is nothing special about this bread. If I pick it up and some crumbs fall on the table or on the floor and someone steps on it, great tragedy has not occurred. And even after I do a prayer, and what kind of prayer do I do? Well, the first one, and you'll hear it when we get to it today, it's a memorial prayer, right? What do I do? I pray that God remember his covenant promise to to us. And what? All the things that Jesus did. It's all about Jesus' sake, right? We give thanks for it and ask God to remember. And then we eat that bread. And the Reformed view of that is, is simply that when we ingest it, God, by his spirit, does something. It's a mystery. It doesn't become the actual blood and, and body of Christ Jesus. That's turning this into this whole idolatry thing. We'll talk briefly about that in just a minute. It's just called receptionism. I hate these technical words, but every once in a while you've got to throw one out. But basically it's very very simple. The Lord's table is the conduit of grace when we eat it and drink it. God remembers all that Jesus did on our behalf. And at his table, through the work of Jesus, by the power of spirit, we are reconciled to the Father and united one to another. Now, it's a huge miracle to be, by the work of Christ to be reconciled to God. But see, God doesn't just leave us in that fashion. He knows that we need one another, and he binds us together in that same memorial. And you know, we do all of this with two items, bread and wine, two prayers, the breaking of bread and the drinking of wine. We need to approach the supper with faith, why? Because God brings blessings in ways here at the, Lord, at the Lord's table of peace in a way that he does not do anywhere else. We need to remember that it's a meal. It's a Thanksgiving feast. We are giving thanks. And the Lord's Supper is joyous. Now, I'll say this. You may have noticed we sang some songs this morning. And if you were paying attention, there were all references, strong references to the Lord's table. And in some ways, we do need to think about the suffering of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's good for us to sing songs and consider passages of Scripture like that. 
but there is joy because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 12, 2 tells us this, that we should be looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Now listen here, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus himself took joy to suffer and die that we might be reconciled. Why should we consider it simply something that to be morbid and dead? No, we rejoice because God keeps his covenant promises for the sake of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So what do we do? We do as Jesus' disciples did. Do you remember in the beginning what did it say? It said that they sat down together. We sit, which is why the practice in here, you know, we don't make a line. Everybody comes up. We don't kneel down in pieces or come up in this way. We sit together, and the bread and the wine is distributed to us. And we talk with one another with hearts full of thanksgiving of God's blessings. So I just want to give you a caveat. We haven't given you a lot of instructions, but it is good for you to look to one another during that conversation piece and speak full of thanksgiving of joy to those around you, relating to what God is doing in your life. And... We need to eat and drink this every week until he comes triumphant on the last day. Now the question is, who may come to the table of peace? This is God's covenant people. The phrase to you and your children in regards to God's promises of us, all of us in here being God's covenant people, appears in Genesis 17, Deuteronomy 29, Deuteronomy 30, and Acts chapter 2, verse 39, just to name a few. God's covenant people has always included their children. 1 Corinthians 7.14 says, For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. Now this word holy here is the word hagias. And hagias actually means, it could be better translated, saint. Now we're going to get back just for a second to that comment in the beginning about John Calvin and the other commentator talking about how the devil's been trying to do all kinds of things and bringing errancy in. For more than a thousand years, Christian children baptized were allowed to the table until the errant teaching of transubstantiation where, of course, the church got all wigged out, the leadership, that is, that a crumb of Christ's body would fall and hit the floor. Therefore, we have to cut children off. We have to cut people off. And then they got it to where, instead of taking the bread and breaking it, we got to take the bread and we got to put it with the wine and have a little spoon and get it in so we don't spill anything. And then they said, oh, no, this is not going to work. We still can't keep Christ's body and blood from hitting the ground. So instead, the priests are going to stand up front. None of the people are going to participate. And we're going to stand back, and we're going to act it out in front of you. And they cut off the masses. Part of the Reformation was not merely faith alone, but to look at the Scriptures and say, what do the Scriptures teach us on this subject? And so they were about restoring the people back 
into having the Lord's table. And, yes, you've been a little slow bringing the kids in as well. It is to be done weekly, and baptized children are welcome. And I would just say as a practical thing, we don't need to take a, an infant and try to force a little crumb or a little wine in there. It's ordinary living. If they can eat and drink, let them eat and drink. We need to understand that you have to be baptized. It's a sign of the covenant. Colossians 2.11 says this, In him you were also circumcised with circumcision made without hands by putting off of the body of sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith, through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he is made alive together with him, having forgiven you all, all, you all, we could say y'all, in those trespasses. We need to remember that if we look at all of Scripture, we recognize that covenant boys were circumcised on the eighth day. Circumcision was a sign of being added to God's covenant people. And we see that God's covenant people came together and ate and took part in the celebrations and meals. Exodus 12, specifically the peace offering in Leviticus 7. And we see there that Yahweh got a piece of it and it was burned up. The priest got a piece of it, and his household got a piece of it. We see in Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 11, You shall rejoice before Yahweh your God, you and your son and your daughter and your male servant and your female servant, and the Levite who is within your gates, the stranger and the fatherless and the widow who are among you, at the place where Yahweh your God chooses to make his name abide. And this this passage here in Deuteronomy 16 is after he's going through all of the feasts again. So it was there was an expectation that all of God's covenant people came. Husbands, wives, children, and everyone who was adopted into your household. That's all the servants. That's that person that you brought into your home who's not necessarily a part of your family. And if there's a stranger who abides amongst the people of God, they too should be cleansed and made part of the people of God, being God-fearers. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. Let us hear this. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud. So this is, this is Paul speaking about the Lord's service. And he says this. I don't want to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud. All the predecessors, all the people before us, the covenant people of God, they were all under the cloud, all passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And then all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank of the spiritual rock that followed them. And that rock was Christ. Now, it's important that we recognize that it's not a free-for-all. Members of God's covenant people can be and should be disciplined and barred from the table from time to time. And that is those who are living in an unrepentant sin. Now remember, we come here together as God's people and we confess our sins at the very early stages of our, our worship so that we are cleansed. But for those who are living in unrepentant sin, Matthew 18 
tells us this, after all attempts have been made, first is an individual, then someone else goes with you, and then finally the elders of the church. And it says, if this person in unrepentant sin, if he refuses to hear them, verse 17, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, and he's specifically speaking to the about the elders, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. We could talk about that more at another time, but this is important for you to understand. That is being cut off from the table. To be excommunicated is to be found and judged to be not willing to confess your sins. And it is a terrible thing. As a matter of fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, it says this, In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, Deliver such one unto Satan for destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. And this again, this is talking about there was terrible sin going on in the church of Corinth, and they were ignoring it. They weren't calling the people to repent. They weren't teaching God's word that you must live it, and if you break God's law, that you must confess it and be restored. But what is it when you're handed over to Satan? That's a terrible thing. The act of excommunication is not just being barred from the table, but to actually be handed over by the elders to Satan. To what end? All discipline is good and living. We know that the Bible tells us about our own children that he who does not discipline his child, what? Hates him. God loves his people and he brings discipline. Romans 2.4 says, Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? When you bring discipline, the whole purpose of discipline is to bring about restoration and repentance for that person. All efforts in discipline is to bring reconciliation. 2 Corinthians 5 that is to say that discipline and turning them over to Satan is to be done with a firm gentleness. Remember this, Galatians 6.1 says this, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, that is to say, not on some ethereal special world, but those that are mature. And this is really saying growing in maturity with God, right? You should restore such one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. So all of Matthew 18, whether it's you as an individual, or you get a second person, or you finally come to the church, all the efforts have been made, all of it is to be done firmly, but also with the spirit of gentleness, recognizing that you too are a sinner saved by grace, and that the point isn't for you to lord over someone or say, I am more holy than you, but rather, dear brother, dear sister, Come to repentance. Repent of these sins so that you may be restored to God. Now this is something else. Sometimes people create a false piety. Right? They feel like they're out of reconciliation with someone and so they stay away from taking the Lord's table and there is a place for that. But to self-restrict in an ongoing way is to abuse the table. If you cannot resolve a division among your brothers and sisters in Christ, don't stay in a place unresolved. 
Call your elders, get them involved, and submit to their judgments, their decisions. We also need to make sure that we need to live and remind ourselves daily that we need to live a repentant life daily. Romans 12.1 tells us this, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. We are living sacrifices to God. We need to confess our sin and and not rely on our own works, but simply on, as it says in 1 Peter 1, the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish or spot. Finally, people of God, we need to recognize something. The celebration of the Lord's table of peace causes sin to be exposed. In 1 Corinthians 1.10, it says, Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that that you all speak the same thing, that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. And and you say, what does that have to do with sin being exposed? Paul writes this letter to the church in Corinth specifically to say to them, you got to get some stuff straight. But he spends the whole first chapter, first four chapters, driving at unity. You are the body of Christ. You can't escape one another. Sometimes that happens, especially in America when there's churches everywhere. I get crossways with somebody over here. I'm going to pack up and I'm heading over there. Well, the fact of the matter is, it doesn't matter what building you're in, you're still brothers and sisters in Christ, and that has to be resolved. There can be no divisions. And we see that there are two tables. You go just a few verses further in verse 21, and we see that there's the table of the Lord, or there's the table of demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake in the Lord's table and of the table of demons. Why? Because God doesn't tolerate it. Because it says this, Are we, or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? No, God will cause sins to rise. Sometimes I've had parents come to me and say, Man, my kids are acting this and doing that. Well, you're coming to the Lord's table every week. You're confessing. And by God's mercies, he's bringing their sins to light. So be faithful, parents discipline your children rightly and bring restoration to them before the Lord. And we certainly know in verse, in chapter 11, verse 29, it talks about drinking in an unworthy manner. And I'm just going to real briefly speak to that. Because sometimes we think there has to be a certain amount of understanding to come to the Lord's table. Because of this verse, it says, oh, they're going to be able to have some sort of discernment. That, first of all, disregards everything of the Old Covenant and church didn't pop out anew, out of nowhere, and it's always in reference to what God has laid down before. But here's the thing. Paul starts out in the book of 1 Corinthians, it's context, division and sin, get it out, right? You're always dividing everybody. And at the first part of chapter 11, because this happens towards the end of chapter 11, after the instructions of the Lord's table, he says, He says, y'all are cutting people off from the table. So the actual discernment, the thing he's concerned about, 
is everybody being greedy and cutting this people out. The rich get this, the others don't get that. And the context is for those who are in sin to discern their sin and to cut it out, to confess it and be restored. Here's the good news. We come to God's table of peace. He transforms us. Colossians 1.19 says this, For it pleased the Father that in him, that's Jesus, all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself by him, whether the things on earth or the things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we plead here this morning nothing other than the blood of Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins. Help us, we pray, to live in accordance to your word. We thank you that you always keep your promises to us because you remember the work of your son Jesus, who reigns with you and the Holy Spirit forever and ever. Amen.